You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Part of the late 1970s, 
next part. Um, also, I'm going to mention um, that uh, if you could hold your questions, we have a lot of material to get through. If you could hold your questions to the end, we're going to take questions at, at the end, and uh, we'll hopefully be able to get to all of them. Um, also, in the hallway, we have um, evaluations, and it really helps us if you fill out those evaluations because then we can make the case to the administration that this type of program is worth uh, supporting. So um, the evaluations are on the table in the hallway and there's a couple of pens out there too. And now I'm gonna um, call Ben up to start us off. All right. Uh, hi everyone. Hello. Uh, I want to, I'm gonna discuss sort of my work and my, where I fit into this, but first I do wanna, um, you know, I really wanna thank, well obviously Tracy, but also Lisa who has really did a lot of work. What she was just describing was a lot of work in getting us all together, and this wouldn't be a thing without her. So I'd like to give a little round of applause. Um, so uh, as Lisa was saying, I spent the last summer and some odd in the spring and beyond the summer um, working with a group called uh, Preservation Maryland. They're a statewide historic preservation organization, and um, the sort of outcome of it was this map. I was looking to sort of find and collect these sites that might have significance to LGBTQ plus people. So that can be old bars, that could be where uh, celebrities who are members of our community grew up, that could be sites of protests, sites of marches and rallies, um, all sorts of things. And so I want to sort of put this up here. I also will have the thing uh, outside. It has the same uh, URL and also the little QR code um, so that if you're interested, it's interactive. There's about 300 sites on there. Um, about 150 to 200 of them are in Baltimore. Um, and it's worth checking out and looking at. I, well, I certainly think so. I spent a lot of time doing it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I'm gonna share then uh, some of the things that I found doing this, especially focused on the very early days. And what I mean by the early days, I mean before we had a lot of language to describe who people like us were um, to, and to describe ourselves. Uh, as you might have seen, there were little handouts. Um, a lot of the terms, uh, including the word sexuality, um, the concepts of uh, gender identity are either from the late 19th century or the mid-20th century, but that does not mean that there weren't, of course, people who didn't sort of fit the traditional gender and sexual roles of their society. Um, in fact, uh, we can look at the sun and find out that there were quite a few. Um, this is the first one that I ever found I'm sorry, I said 1836, it's actually 1838, so. Um, <laughs> but this is the influence of a bad example, which is effectively someone was found to be trying to sell a stolen horse uh, in Baltimore and take it to the police office where effectively they discovered that it was someone who to them looked female, dressing into them what they described as male clothes. Um, and it's 
actually kind of fascinating because in many ways you read this article and uh, aside from the like language in it, the language obviously is very old timey. Um, what they're actually saying is effectively, oh, this happened and kids these days don't know how to dress. Um, and so it's actually a very like common thing that you might expect to read today is, is that this is some newfangled thing and this is society's breaking down because kids don't know what gender is and don't know how to dress. Um, Lady in Black, that's the other thing in here, is um, a different story from the Civil War. This is from uh, the 1860s. Um, Lady in Black was someone who went by Mrs. J.D. Ross, um, who was either we would describe now as a trans woman or a drag queen, was someone who was raised male uh, and wore the clothing and took on the, the, the sort of gender pre presentation of a respectable woman of the time. Um, and did that specifically up and down the East Coast to um, soldiers camps during the Civil War where she would then bring home soldiers uh, to her hotel. Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a, you see these things where these people sort of start popping up and between newspapers and other uh, sort of things within society doesn't really know how to make sense of it. Um, in both these cases, these are described as pranks. Uh, that's very common at this time because it, there's no understanding that it could be anything else. Um, as we move forward, however, people start getting that language. And this is one of the most amazing stories I've, I found while doing my research. This is a sketch of um, Howard Calder, and Howard was a probably one of the first examples of someone who would openly just like describe what we would see as a trans man. Um, which is to say, this is in 1889. Um, there, there's a quote on the right that says, uh, I will tell you why I left home. I was a girl until about 25 years old, then I noticed a change coming in my sex, and I was becoming a man. I certainly have been one for over 10 years. And uh, Howard had a fling with the girl next door, tried to elope, got married legally uh, by a Catholic priest who basically said, well, I don't understand that this is, basically said, I don't know that this is something that makes sense to me, but you look male, you sound male, you seem to be very comfortable as a male, so sure. It was a, a big uh, media sensation for a long time. Um, after that, uh, Howard wound up becoming sort of a, a working with a dime uh, show, which is really what we would describe as a sideshow um, after that. But what I find really fascinating about it is, um, aside from obviously there was some coverage of it that was very negative, um, both the Sun and the Baltimore News American, or uh, I think it was the Baltimore American, is the one that you sent me that yeah. article from. Um, used correct pronouns, were very deliberate about it, and this was actually the norm, um, which is amazing in that 
effectively what they said was, um, this is maybe crazy, but we don't know how this works. Looks like a male, acts like a male, says he's a male, therefore, who are we to say otherwise? Which, I will note, is probably a significantly more progressive uh, way of dealing with trans men in the press than The Sun or several other newspapers have right now. Um, so, um, here's some more articles. And this is another um, story that was very similar in some ways. This is a picture of um, uh, Herman Wood, who was living in Baltimore. It's a very similar story. It was 1902. Um, his the, the, the family of his wife basically tried to annul the marriage because he was a trans man. He was not, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of them, he was a woman. Um, There's a similar story. In, in, in truth, there was this uh, interesting thing where they didn't know how to deal with it again, um, so they did annul the marriage, but when they tried to, they wanted to press civil charges, and they put it because the wife refused to. Um, but I do find it amazing because it actually ran with a picture. Um, and this is what he actually looked like in 1902. Um, so, as we move forward, um, again, we start seeing more of a sense of permissiveness in culture, um, especially in entertainment, that carves out the space for queer people. Um, and in the 1920s and 30s, there is what's called the pansy craze. And the pansy craze is this jazz age sort of like feeling of, oh, there's something interesting and exotic and novel about, about drag, effectively. Um, and one of the biggest ones uh, was Carol Norman, who grew up in Baltimore and got started doing work in Baltimore and was Certainly not openly gay in the sense that we know today, but quotes about him from people he worked with was, we all knew it was accepted. We just knew that that's what he was into. Um, so in some ways it was. He was openly gay to the people that he worked with. However, uh, in Baltimore, uh, Baltimore was then and remains now a very segregated city, and the real serious, like most significant forcing the, this concept of pansy craze was in the black clubs in West Baltimore, where um, the, the, uh, the Afro ran all of this coverage of these big pansy balls, as they were called. And this is the precursor to the drag balls that you see if you watch the show Pose or if you watch the movie uh, Paris is Burning. This is a culture that's gone back very, very far um, and specifically in Baltimore, it was very big. In many places across the East Coast, it was shut down for whatever reason. While it was shut down frequently in D.C. and in Philadelphia and in Atlantic City, in Baltimore, it never was. And so there were these extravagant balls every year that the Afro would cover. I mean, they would cover all of the clothing and all of this, and they would, again, see it with a certain novelty. But... This was, um, to me at least, I think one of the most fascinating things to look at, because you do, again, you have the pictures of it. You have 
this view of what did a like what were performers at the pansy balls in the 1930s look what were they dressing like what how were they sort of posing and, and, and presenting um, and so I'm just here are just some of the um, photos of some of the performers from the pansy balls um, and these were all happening throughout the 30s in Baltimore and in other cities around but in Baltimore, they had these huge balls that would bring a bunch of people together. Um, I, I particularly like the second one here is uh, Mother Joe Smothers, um, who was another Baltimore-born uh, sort of performer of the pansy craze, who would perform at these balls, but also in sort of cabaret-type shows um, with, it, he is noted as having um, risque numbers such as pansies on parade and hot nuts. Um, <laughs> and what I like about it is that it shows that this culture um, wasn't just about effectively passing, right? A lot of um, a lot of these pictures, a lot of old sort of like drag culture has does have a, a, a sense of wanting to pass, wanting to appear in, you know, appear like high class uh, you know, society effectively. Um, whereas uh, Mother Joe's mother was very androgynous, uh, evidently uh, bleached his hair, had heavy makeup, in many ways looked, at least to me, a lot like sort of the, the, the MC in Cabaret, right? Like that sort of um, very avant garde androgynous look. Um, and Joe Smothers wound up actually working in uh, New York for many years and was a part of, you know, not a huge part, but a part of the clubs that were a big part of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, I believe that's all I have. Yep. And so now uh, I'm going to invite Richard to talk about some of the queer women in Baltimore's history. Thanks. So as a result, there was a desire, a desire to found a medical school with no money. As a result, this medical school didn't get off the ground until 1893. It took the fundraising efforts of a group of five women to make that happen. These five women included Mary Elizabeth Garrett, who you see on the right, who was born in 1854 and died in 1915. Mamie Gwynn, who's on my left, born in 1861 and died in 1940. Martha Carey Thomas, who went by Carey, was born in 1857 and died in 1935. We're going to focus on these three women, but the group also included Julia Rogers and Bessie King. The women raised $500,000. By today's standards, of course, that didn't seem like a lot, but in the 18, late 1880s, early 1890s, it was a fair amount of money. And they did this with two provisions, two, we're not going to do this in the West, provisions. One was that school wouldn't, they wouldn't do the work unless the school admitted women. So Hopkins has the distinction of being the first major American medical school that admitted women. The second was that they wanted the school to be a graduate level program. At that time, you didn't need a bachelor's degree to go to medical school. 
they wanted the school to be graduate level. And one of the professors made a joke that it's lucky that he got in to teach there before they imposed that requirement because he wasn't quite sure that he'd get in after they imposed that requirement. So they did that with the provision that women be admitted. Mary Elizabeth Garrett's father was John Ward Garrett, who was the president of the B&O Railroad, and the Garrett family had lots and lots of money. The family mansion was 101 West Monument Street. If you can visualize where Hotel Revival is, it's just up the street at the corner of Cathedral and Monument. That's where the family mansion was. Now, if you're thinking of the Garrett mansion, the Garrett Jacobs mansion, which is on Mount Vernon Square, the Garrett family had three kids. It was Mary Elizabeth and two sons. When each of the sons married, the parents gave the son and his new bride a home of their, of their own as a wedding gift. And the Garrett Jacobs mansion was the home of one of the two sons. After that son died, his wife remarried. Her second husband's last name was Jacobs. And that's how that mansion is called the Garrett Jacobs mansion. So that's not the house I'm talking about. That house is long since gone. Hotel Revival is on the site of where the Garrett family mansion was. And that was torn down in the late 1920s. And the building that you see standing there today is the current Hotel Revival. So Mary Elizabeth Garrett's family had lots and lots of money. When Father Garrett died, Mary Elizabeth and her brothers inherited the family's considerable wealth, which meant that Mary Elizabeth Garrett, at the time of her father's death, became one of America's richest women. She was an ardent feminist, she was a lesbian, and she used her considerable fortune to advance the, the, um, the, the plight of women, the cause of women, and she was especially interested in women's right to vote and women's right to education, especially higher education. And Mamie Gwynn was, Draw a blank for just a second, born in 1861. And all of these women knew one another since childhood. They came from a privileged family. Four of the five women were the daughters of Hopkins trustees. And Mamie Gwynn, uh, just lost my place here. Ah, Mamie Gwynn earned her bachelor's degree at Cornell. At the time she finished, her bachelor's degree, she wanted to go on to earn a PhD, but at that time, no American university admitted women to graduate programs. So she went off to Europe, and she earned her PhD there. And she returned to the States, and she began teaching at Bryn Mawr College in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, I, I just goofed up myself. I'm talking about uh, Martha Carey Thomas. So it's Martha uh, Carey Thomas who finished her bachelor's degree at Cornell, and went on to earn a PhD at the University of Zurich, because as I said, no American University was admitting women at that time to graduate level studies. She was accompanied by Mamie Gwynn. The two women had had an emotional attraction to one another since an early age, and so Mamie Gwynn accompanied Carrie Thomas while the two women lived together in Europe. They lived together for four years, and then when they returned to the States, Carrie Thomas took a teaching job at Bryn Mawr. She rose the, through the academic ranks pretty quickly. She went on to become a dean from there to become the president. She spent many years as the president of Bryn Mawr College. Mamie Gwynn and Carrie Thomas lived together on the campus of Bryn Mawr for 21 years as a couple. So they spent a total of 25 years together as a couple. And during the time that Mamie was living on the Bryn Mawr campus, she went on to earn a PhD in English at Bryn Mawr and at Thomas's instigation, Bryn Mawr became the first American university 
admitted women, admitted women to graduate level programs. So Moore was a pioneer in that sense because it was the first American university that admitted women to graduate programs. So Mamie went out to teach English on the Grinmore faculty, and she scandalized the faculty in 1904 when she and Alfred Hodder, who was one of her fellow English faculty members, went out to New York together. So who's moving out the back door of the president's mansion on the Grinmore campus? It's Mamie Gwynn. Who's moving in the front door? It's Mary Elizabeth Garrett, because Mary Elizabeth Garrett. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk about another triangle just in a few minutes. Uh, but <laughs> Mamie Gwynn had moved out the back door, so Mary Elizabeth Garrett is moving in the front door because Mary Elizabeth Garrett and Carrie Thomas had carried on a relationship of some kind during the years that Mamie Gwynn and Carrie Thomas had lived together. And it was a source of rivalry, of course, between the three women. So Mary Elizabeth Garrett spent the last 12 years of her life living on the Grimoire campus with Carrie Thomas. So when Mary Elizabeth Garrett died in 1915, she still had a fair amount of money, and so Carrie Thomas inherited the remainder of her wealth. She also inherited the family home on 101 West Monument Street. She was living in Brynmore. She was still the president of Brynmore College. She didn't have any use for the house. Enter the Baltimore Museum of Art, because the BMA was founded in 1914, and until 1922 was a museum without walls. In other words, it existed in the imagination of the trustees of the BMA, but it didn't have a collection. It was assembled a lot, but it still didn't have a building. So in 1922, Carrie Thomas offered the use of that mansion at 101. One West Monument to the BMA, and they opened the first temporary collection at that home at 101 West Monument in 1923. Hopkins then offered some land to the BMA trustees. They moved up to the current location in 1929. So you do see the long influence of Carrie Thomas there, a lesbian, helping to create the Baltimore Museum of Art. Gertrude Stein. You can see the arrow, and this is Gertrude right up here. <laughs> when we did this for the first time, we had a better picture, but we decided to use this instead because remember, Hopkins began to admit women to its medical school in 1893. Gertrude Stein was admitted in 1897. If you look at the picture, you can see how many women are there. Top row, four women, Gertrude, another woman. How many people are in this picture? Probably 80 some. Uh, Gertrude Stein had deep roots in Baltimore. Her grandparents, as well as her parents, were Baltimore natives. Her father moved the family to Allegheny, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh at the time of the Civil War, because he was put off by the amount of pro-Confederate uh, sentiment that he saw here in Baltimore. So she spent part of her growing up years in Allegheny, part of her time in Oakland, California, part of her time in Europe, and for a brief period of time she did live here. Her mother died when she was 13, I think, so a maternal aunt lived on Linden Avenue in Reservoir Hill, and so she spent some time with that aunt on Linden Avenue. She finished her bachelor's degree at Radcliffe, and she moved here to go to medical school at Hopkins in 1897. Her brother Leo was living in Mount Vernon at 212 East Preston Street, and she lived with Leo for a period of three years between 1897 1900. There's a plaque in front of the building at 212 East Preston Street where they lived together for that period of three years. 
And initially her grades in medical school were pretty good, but she was something of an iconoclast. And there was a fair amount of sexism there because there were so few women in the class. And there was not a great deal of receptivity to seeing women in the class. She was Jewish. There was anti-Semitism that was there as well. It was fairly obvious. And she was an iconoclast. I mean, she, she smoked cigars. She boxed. She didn't wear a corset. And she had her first foray of same-sex love. She had a classmate named Mabel Haynes, one of her fellow, fellow medical school students. And Mabel Haynes had moved to Baltimore to go to medical school with her lover, a woman named May Bookstaver, who was Gertrude carrying on with May Bookstaver. <laughs> well, you know how those things go. So <laughs> Gertrude was not a happy camper. She had a, a spat with one of her obstet obstetrics professors. Her grades were failing, so during her fourth year in school, she sort of flunked out. She sort of got put out. She tried to do some research. It was deemed unpublishable. So at the end of her time in Baltimore in 1901, Gertrude was not a happy camp because she wasn't very happy about her first foray into love. She wasn't very happy about her experiences in medical school. So for a period of time, she was wandering in the wilderness. She left Baltimore. She lived in New York for a brief period of time. She lived in London for a brief period of time. And she lived in Italy for a brief period of time. Her brother, Leo, had dropped out of his doctoral program in zoology at Hopkins. He had moved to Europe. And I think a lot of you who know Gertrude Stein's name know the story from this point on. She was looking for a relief from the, the structures she felt in American society. And she found that living in Paris, where she spent the rest of her life, and she took up that community of avant-garde artists and uh, writers, people like Jane Joyce, Matisse, and Picasso. Her earliest writings do reflect her times in Baltimore. For example, in 1903, I think it's 03. Let me check my dates. Yeah, it's 03. Uh, she wrote a novel called QED. It was a novella that wasn't published until after the time of her death. She died in 46, and the book was published in 1950. And that's based ex explicitly on that Gertrude Stein made Bookstaver, Mabel Haynes triangle that she was involved with during the time that she was in medical school. And she admitted a long time ago, or a long time after that she'd written the novel, that she had written it uh, and simply stuffed it into her drawer and forgotten about it. She didn't feel it was, she felt it was too early to write about these things in our civilization. She also wrote another novella in 1904 called Fernhurst, which was a fictionalized version of that uh, triangle that involved Alfred Hodder, Mamie Gwynn, and Carrie Thomas. And Mary Elizabeth Garrett took a proprietary interest in the women who were in medical school at the time, since she helped to create the medical school with her fundraising. And so Mary Elizabeth Garrett also was featured as a minor character in those novellas. And that, we included a copy of the book that's out on the display table at the in the lobby. So and re-entered the Baltimore Museum of Art. Here's Gertrude in the center. This is Dr. Clara Balcone here. And this is Clara Bell's sister, Etta, with his wild hat. <laughs> Clara Balcone was a graduate of the Baltimore Women's Medical College, which was around from 1882 until 1910. She taught there on a part-time basis, and she was also working part-time in the lab of Dr. William Welch, who was one of those early Hopkins luminaries. And so Gertrude Stein and Clara Bell Cohn knew one another because, of course, with so few women in the medical school and at the hospital, they 
became friends pretty quickly. They both lived in Mount Vernon. They began to take the streetcar to and from the hospital over in East Baltimore. And as a result of their friendship, Gertrude Stein also became friends with Clara Bell's younger sister. Uh, the Kong family had a fair amount of money, and of course, Clara Bell was a doctor, so she had discretionary income of her own. And when Gertrude Stein moved to Europe, the friendship of the three women continued. And so the Kong sisters began going off to Europe on a regular basis to visit Gertrude Stein. Well, who was Gertrude Stein? How not nodding with them at the left bank of Paris, but the wives of Matisse and Picasso. So the, uh, the Kong sisters had entree to those artists. And of course, this was at the time when these artists were unknown, young, struggling artists. And so the Kong sisters were buying works of Matisse and Picasso on the cheap. They were taking them back to Baltimore. They lived in a large apartment. I think they had a couple of apartments that cobbled together in the building in the 2400 block of Utah Place in Reservoir Hill. And so they were displaying all this artwork on the, home, and on the walls of their home. Edda died in 1950. She willed the collection to the Baltimore Museum of Art, and that's how the BMA has all of that Matisse. It was purchased by the Cone sisters due to their friendship with Gertrude Stein. And so again, you see the long arm of another lesbian in a formational period of the Baltimore Museum of Art, because that's how the BMA got all of that Matisse. The Cone sisters purchased it. They were able to do that because they had entree into those circles of artists of Gertrude Stein. And that's how the DNA came to have all of that Matisse. This was fun for me because one thing I've come to enjoy as a result of my work doing <coughs> walking tours of Charles Village and Mount Vernon through Baltimore Heritage, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I've come to enjoy doing walking tours when I go on vacation. So a couple of summers ago, I was in Berlin, and I was taking a walking tour that was called In the Footsteps of Christ Christopher Isherwood. Isherwood was the gay American novelist who lived in Berlin during the late 20s and early 30s during that time in Berlin history. And Berlin was a wide open gay town because that was during that period, an unprecedented period of LGBTQ freedom in Berlin. Of course, it ended pretty quickly when the Nazis came to power. Isherwood was living here during that time, and he wrote that collection of stories called The Berlin Stories, and The Berlin Stories formed the basis for the play and the musical in the film uh, Cabaret. So we were standing in front of the rooming house where Christopher Ishwood lived, and the tour guide was talking about a number of characters who lived in the neighborhood, including a woman named Anita Berber, who's on the left-hand corner, down here. And she was a lesbian, a woman who was a lesbian, and she was described as the high priestess of depravity. And she was married, <laughs> it's true. And so she was married to a gay man who was from Baltimore named Henry Chicane Hoffman. So of course my ears perked up. So I'm thousands of miles away from home, and someone's telling me about someone's of Baltimore and who was an expatriate living in Berlin during this interesting period in gay German history. So, of course, I did some more fact-checking. There's a biography of Anita Berger, which isn't very good, but it does have some information about Hoffman. And I found this picture on Wikipedia. So, is this man a major figure? No, he's really not. But I thought it was an interesting curiosity, because we spent some time talking about uh, Gertrude Stein, who escaped the strictures of life in Baltimore by moving to Europe. And Henry Chitin Hoffman did the same thing. His family lived in the 1700 block of North Calvary uh, Street in Station North. 
His father was the pastor of Zion Luther Church. If you know where Zion Luther Church is, it's over close to City Hall, close to the fire department. Uh, yeah, the fire department's headquarters. It's that, there's that plaza between the War Memorial and City Hall, and Zion's right over there. So he's a, a good German boy from Baltimore. You can be sure he grew up speaking German. And he probably had a certain opinion of living in Baltimore and having a straight-laced German family. So he was a dancer. He moved to New York. He then moved on to Berlin. And he got married to Benita Berber, the high priestess of depravity. She had three husbands. The second one was a police chief. She then went on to marry Henry Chetan Hoffman, who was a dancer. They danced together, and they performed what were politely described as erotic and ecstasy dances. <laughs> Her life ended tragically. She died in her late 20s. He then moved back to New York, tried to reestablish his career as a dancer. It didn't go very well. He spent the last years of his life living as a patient at Spring Grove, the old mental hospital, uh, which is now closed. So he was born in 1900, died in 1961, and is buried in the Western Cemetery in the 3000 block of Edmondson Avenue. So as I said, this was something that just fell out of the sky, hit me over the head, and I thought it was fun to include because I didn't really expect to go to Berlin to go on the gay walking tour of what's called the Gaberhood of Berlin, only to find out something about someone from Baltimore. Lisa, it's your turn. Okay, I'm going to talk about um, public attitudes towards people who were LGBTQ plus over the years, as well as crackdowns on those communities. Uh, this um, article, which evidently uh, expresses editorial uh, opinion, because it's no author attributed, um, it was from April 29th, 1871, the Baltimore Sun, and um, I am going to just read a part of it to you. The effeminate man is a weak poultice. He is a cross between table beer and ginger pop, with the cork left out. A freshwater mermaid found in a cow pasture with her hands filled with dandelions. And I'll skip to the end. He goes through life on tiptoe and dies like cologne water spilt over the ground. Okay, so uh, fast forward about uh, 60 years, and uh, we find this uh, in the Afro-American, uh, March 22nd, 1930, with a similar title, Effeminate Men. There is nothing more dangerous to the growth of a race and nothing more disgusting than this group of atypical men whose minds should be centered on wholesome exercise and recreation, clean living and hard work, instead of devoting their time and their talent to the use of the skirt, the lipstick, and the powder puff as a means of physically attracting others of the same sex. There may be shorter and quicker ways of going to hell, Okay, so then 10 years later, you can see, uh, you can see some of these attitudes. Uh, 
homosexualism, again in the Afro-American, um, July 19, 1941. Oh, and I should say the Afro-American Afro seemed to be uh, uh, kind of conflicted. Uh, you know, they published these very harsh critiques, uh, but at the same time, the um, drag balls that Ben talked about, they covered those as if they were uh, writing about the uh, straight society uh, events and the straight society columns, you know, describing the uh, performers' um, dresses and accessories and minute detail in kind of a um, sort of admiring way. Uh, homosexualism. It isn't smart or fashionable. It isn't even decent. And no community can take the spread of it lightly or fail to use the strictest measures to stamp it out. Which brings me to the um, anti-vice crusades of the early part of the 20th century. Um, uh, in cities across the country in the um, 1910s, um, vice commissions started to form. Um, this was what's called the progressive era. And, you know, they started uh, trying to deal with uh, prob problems that they saw resulting from um, mass immigration and uh, increasing urbanization. And um, the first one of these uh, vice commissions was formed in Chicago in 1911. Um, the Baltimore Commission was formed in 1913 and started reporting out in about 1915. So this um, cartoon appeared in 1913, when the, uh, the year that the Vice Commission was formed. Um, and uh, I'll just read the inscription. The cartoonist was a longtime uh, Baltimore's son, cartoonist McKee Barclay. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft, familiar with his face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. So let that be a warning to you. So, uh, as I said, the uh, Maryland Vice Commission was uh, formed in 1914. Um, it was appointed by uh, Maryland Governor Goldsboro, the physician George Walker was appointed as the chairman of the committee, um, and it began to report out in 1915. Its main um, concern was heterosexual prostitution and whether to keep it segregated in vice districts where you have things like body houses, disorderly houses, um, or to uh, break up those vice districts, which would uh, could result in street walking and pimping. Um, so um, heterosexual prostitution was the main concern, but there was this appendix, sexual perversion, <coughs> homosexuality, and you can really get at some of the attitudes, uh, prevalent attitudes by reading this. And matter of fact, we have it in the uh, Maryland department if you're interested. Come on up and take a look. Um, I'm just going to read a few parts of it to you. Um, so the report begins by saying that in a recent summer, the police arrested 25 men on prostitution-related charges. 
Um, most of these arrests were made on Charles Street, Franklin Street, and Mulberry Street, which is just about right here. <laughs> but then this appendix digresses from uh, gay prostitution and starts to treat homosexuality itself as if it were a vice. And I'm going to read a part. Um, as a rule, men of this type are distinct from the normal individual and can be easily recognized on the street. Their peculiarities are feminine mannerisms, as shown in the gait and the movement of the head and the hands, in their rather high-pitched voice simulating a woman's, and in the choice of words, such expressions as how charming, <laughs> most enchanting, <laughs> gorgeously delicious, and oh my dear, are frequently used. They are strikingly verbose and nearly always speak in superlatives. <laughs> they are much addicted to letter writing and their epistles are long and filled with various veiled references to their practices. <laughs> the method of perversion which they use varies with different individuals or different sets of individuals, and for obvious reasons will not be described here. <laughs> uh, Homosexuality among women, um, they, they, go on to, they don't have much on that. They go on to say that, <laughs> that they, it wasn't possible to investigate it carefully. <laughs> Two well-known women who are engaged in various affairs about the city are perverts. Uh, a set of three others, one in a very responsible, excuse me, responsible position and one in a minor position, all have perverted relations among themselves. And then they go on to say that there are numerous young women engaged in the practice. Okay, so uh, this article appeared in February, uh, February 6, 1923, and it lists uh, the crimes that were serious enough to uh, disenfranchise those who were caught doing them. And as you see, <laughs> was among them. So not only uh, was it illegal, but it could cause you, if you get caught doing it, not to be able to vote. Okay, so now we're going to uh, skip forward uh, to the post-war period and the Lavender Scare. Um, there was a post-war moral panic, um, and uh, during World War II, large numbers of men and women were thrown together in same-sex environments. Um, men in barracks, obviously, and women, a lot of women entered the workforce, so they're working in factories. Um, there was also a post-war post backlash to the New Deal and Truman's Fair Deal. One Republican senator referred to the, quote, New Deal, Fair Deal, and Fairy Deal administration. <laughs> uh, intellectuals were often conflated with homosexuals, so that's where you get sort of the tie-in between the Red, red Scare and the um, Lavender Scare. Uh, 
Sun reporter Gene Oishi had to explain, in a, or felt that he had to explain in the June 1966 article, quote, just because a person is intelligent and educated, that doesn't mean he's more likely to be a, hom a homosexual. Um, David K. Johnson is a scholar who's written about the Lavender, Lavender Scare, and he says that more than 800 federal employees nationwide lost their jobs uh, with, in the words of Senate investigators, quote, files containing information indicating sexual perversion. Um, the Lavender Scare impacted government contractors, uh, government workers, and private private sector employees. And of course, all these groups of employees uh, were prevalent in Maryland, especially since Maryland is so, in such close proximity to the seat of government in Washington. So uh, Maryland was very affected by the Lavender Scare. Um, this editorial is from the Afro-American, 1965. So many effeminate males are in government that it is necessary to do something about it. Uh, and uh, that brings me to the next topic, uh, crackdowns. There were quite a few crackdowns on uh, LGBTQ plus people in the post-war period. These are just a few headlines I found in a 10-year period from 1966 to 1976. And there's not time really to go into every one of them, but I am going to talk about two of the most prominent crackdowns. Um, the first one being uh, the crackdown on the Pepper Hill Club, which was in the 200 block of North Gay Street. As you can see by the photo, it's mostly men. Um, John Waters writes about getting in uh, to Pepper Hill with a fake ID as a teenager uh, in his book, Role Models. So um, at about 11 p.m. Saturday night, um, October 1st, 1955, Vice Squad Sergeant Hyman Goldstein sent two patrolmen to check on the club. They found overcrowded conditions and, quote, evidence of homosexuality. All 162 people in the club were arrested, and they were shuttled to the police station in wagons that made 24 tri trips in all. And by this time, you know, a huge crowd had gathered, and they had all these traffic cops there, as well as other kinds of cops. And it was, an, it was the largest nightclub raid ever made in Baltimore. It was a part of a cleanup of the block. And the block at that time was not just the two blocks of West Baltimore Street that we think of now when we think of the block. It actually extended around up onto Gay Street. Um, and much of those, much of it, has been uh, destroyed when the uh, Highway 83 was extended south towards the Inner Harbor. Uh, the Sun on October 3rd stated that most of those arrested were from Washington. And whether this is true or not, probably a lot of them were from Washington because, um, you know, whether it's true that most of them were, I don't know, but a lot of Washingtonians would come up to Baltimore to party because they were afraid, because of the Lavender Scare, they were afraid of being seen in Washington bars. So they'd come up here and uh, they thought they could enjoy greater anonymity up here. Um, and they slum it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, of the 162 
people that were arrested, only five were convicted of disorderly conduct. The magistrate was Meyer M. Cardin, who is the father of our current senator, Benjamin Cardin. Um, the club owners were charged separately a few days later with operating the club for, quote, the purpose of lewdness and assignation and as a disorderly house. Um, this is, we have this series of, um, of uh, indexes to uh, clubs in Baltimore that have um, liquor licenses in the Maryland department. So this 213 Gay Street North, the owners were Victor Lance and Morton J. Cohen. That was Pepper Hill. And this is where uh, Pepper Hill was. Richard took this photo where the white car is. Uh, that's pretty much where it was. And as I said, it was destroyed when 83 was extended south. Um, the police were actually sharply criticized for the Pepper Hill raid. Delegate Jerome Robinson said other methods should be used in dealing with the, pro the public problem of massing homosexuals in licensed establishments. Um, after a four-hour trial, the judge found the club owners innocent. The court broke out in terms of applause. Uh, the judge stated that uh, the police should have approached individual violators individually, separately, rather than making a mass arrest. After all, as we just saw, the club was licensed by the state of Maryland, and it wasn't illegal just to enter the club. Uh, police Commissioner James Hepron promised that it wouldn't happen again. And he, as well as the officers who led the raid, were invited to Annapolis to explain. <laughs> so uh, this public, this problem that Jerome Robinson talked about is the massing of homosexuals in uh, licensed establishments, it was uh, resolved or taken care of in 1966 when, in effect, gay bars were made illegal in Baltimore. Um, the Baltimore Liquor Board banned same-sex same couples dancing together and female impersonators in Baltimore bars in that year. Anti-deviant policy set for tavern. Okay, so uh, that we're going to fast forward about 16 years. Cicero's that was at the 500 block of in the 500 block of Forest Street, which was also kind of near the block. It was that same general district. Uh, by the time of the 1971 raid, Cicero's was an after-hours milk bar, meaning it, its liquor it had lost its liquor license. And here's a little history. In 1966, the, uh, the bar lost its liquor license for 30 days. A liquor board member said that compared to this place, the block is a Sunday school. <laughs> <laughs> the patrons at that time were in the words of a police officer, mostly butches, dykes, and fans. Another police officer said, them lesbians, they don't have no respect for nobody. <laughs> said he made women take off their neckties before he would serve them. Uh, also, another interesting fact, Lumbee Indians hung out at, at that bar. Um, one time a patron uh, shot at, but apparently didn't hit, a male police officer who had entered the women's room because there had been a complaint of a woman in there with a gun. 
And um, so um, the officer immediately shot back and injured but not killing the patron. Um, in January of 68, Cicero's liquor license was revoked. In April of 68, the liquor uh, board imposed a $150 fine because an undercover cop found uh, people smoking pot, uh, solicitations for prostitution, sales of marijuana and amphetamines, and, quote, the presence of homosexuals and lesbians. So on March 27, 1971, in the early morning hours, a 13-man raiding squad arrested 100 people at Cicero's. But this time, rather than the orderly loading of people into wagons, the patrons fought back. Um, so it wasn't like Pepper Hill 16 years earlier. Uh, it was much less orderly. According to the head raider, Captain Simon J. Avara, we had to fight our way in and fight our way out as bottles, glasses, and ashtrays were hurled at the cops. Um, and if that name sounds familiar, Simon J. Avara was the nephew of longtime Maryland Board of Censors head and John Waters' nemesis, Mary Avara. Uh, so the Avara family was really working hard to keep, a ball, to keep Baltimore um, free from vice. Okay. And I, I call this uh, Baltimore's Little Stonewall. It doesn't make a real clean story because of the drugs and the guns. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a Baltimore story of gays resisting. And um, this is another Richard photo of uh, Forest Street, about where um, Cicero's was. You can kind of orient yourself by looking at the, uh, you can see the shot tower and the post office in the background. Richard. Gender history. Uh, John Money was a native of Australia. He moved to the States to earn a PhD in psychology from Harvard, and in 1951, after he finished the degree, he moved here to Baltimore to begin a teaching career in the medical school at Hopkins. And he spent more than 50 years teaching at Hopkins. He died in 2006, and he spent a period almost up until the end of his life teaching at Hopkins. Uh, he was a professor of pediatrics and medical psychology at Hopkins. And Hopkins was the first major American medical school to admit women. And Hopkins was the first academic medical institution in the US to perform sex reassignment or gender reconfirmation uh, surgery. It was because of Money's influence. In 1965, Money established the Gender Identity Clinic, which nowadays is called the Sex and Gender Clinic. And because he was a psychologist, he wasn't the person who was performing the gender confirmation surgeries. That was done by a surgeon whose name was Claude Mignon. It's M-I-G-E-O-N. Hopkins performed gender confirmation surgeries from 1966 until 1979. In 79, the person who was head of psychiatry at Hopkins was opposed to the idea that Hopkins continue to perform these surgeries. So for a 38-year period, from 1979 until 2017, Hopkins didn't perform gender confirmation surgeries. They've been doing it again for the past two years. Money was a pro prolific writer, and they included a number of books that he's written on the table outside. 
Uh, they include titles like Gay Street, Straight and In Between, Gender Maps, Love Maps, Sin Science, and the Sex Beliefs, and the Unspeakable Monsters. People will toss around phrases nowadays like gender role or gender identity. It was because of John Money's research into sexual identity and the biology of gender that we're using those phrases. I also think nowadays the word sexual orientation are, again, two words that we roll off of our tongues pretty readily. And he was the one who coined that play, phrase and it replaced the words sexual preference. So that's a bit about John Lundy. Lewis. Last but not least. Mm -hmm. The hippo, and we have a picture of this uh, before and after, uh, which is now the CVS drugstore. But before it was even the hippo, it was uh, the Chanticleer, which is a historic spot of clubs in the 1920s, 30s. And actually, I went to the Chanticleer just as it was changing to the hippo in the 70s. Uh, and uh, it's quite interesting. But the hippo has had a long history of racial discrimination for lesbians and gay men for Cardi. Uh, even when I dated interracially, uh, I always got caught at the hippo. And my own mother uh, didn't bring her pocketbook when I was showing her the clubs for all time in the 70s. And I had to take her back to Pikesville, my partner, to get her ID. Uh, she was in her late 60s, a little younger than I am now. But I uh, thought it was the craziest thing. I had a wonderful black lesbian from Laurel sued them and won. Um, we had um, meetings at the Gay Community Center uh, talking to club owners about this. But this was happening in Washington, Philadelphia in other cities, it was quite common. It's sort of the intersection of race uh, in the gay community and uh, discrimination to lesbians and not treating them fairly. And um, their answer was the uh, doorman was just doing that on his own. I think that was Chuck Barris, who was known as the manager. And the interesting thing I always found was there were no raids at the and I always thought it was owned by the mafia man. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, or the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> but uh, that's sort of my take off uh, on the hippo. And it is a historic landmark. Uh, uh, if you see um, the club hippo picture on the left, uh, shows the weather vane that was on top of the ball. It, um, is the rooster's not there, which was Chanticleer means rooster in French. And um, that's uh, part of its history. So, uh, and in fact, there's several spots that end up being CBS in the Baltimore. <laughs> I don't know what that happens to be. Maybe somebody at CBS likes to buy 
historic lesbian games. This is a picture of the diversity. Uh, actually, we have Andre Tom stand up here. Charles Street, a few doors from 
the ass hippo, aka CBS. <laughs> um, and uh, it's uh, and it was the apartment of a very diverse uh, person named Dina Rathmine, a Puerto Rican Jew, uh, and uh, it was a place that we climbed up in that in this living room and had workshops and had the CDC start the gay clinic that is now uh, known as Chase Braxton Health Services. So it was a neat thing. That's one of the neatest things that's happened. And the practicing is still existing on uh, North Charles Street uh, in the 2500 block. The picture on the right is uh, New York City Pride in June of 96. Andre is all the way on the left of that picture again. He likes to hang out with us. Paulette Young is on the second row. And I think the thinking was we would have you first holding the banner and lesbians next and then the rest of the people. We can't decide. Uh, I don't remember if I went that time or if it was really 1977, but it was plus or minus. So it was, and that would be a year or two after the start of uh, the Lesbian, uh, the Baltimore Gay Alliance, and eventually becoming uh, the Senate. But um, in that picture, also uh, next to Paula is Kathy Valentine who's a retired social worker that lives in New York, and Paulette lives in New York, retired social worker. And next to uh, her is Gail Vino, who is the person that wrote the grant to uh, start Chase Braxton, and the person who met her basement for uh, the newspaper, Gay Life, and uh, the switchboard, and many other things. Uh, her parents bought a house on the corner of uh, 28th and North uh, Calvert. And uh, it has an English basement that you can enter. There's a lot of space in there to do things uh, while we were getting a building and getting all the other part of being organized. Uh, we had to help with people who had that. And she was uh, in medical school uh, at Hopkins. And like Gertrude Stein and a bunch of other people like that. Uh, but uh, that's a good thing. I mean, see, lesbians on their way up. <laughs> and uh, maybe Hopkins didn't go to make it. And uh, so uh, that, that's a very uh, nice remembrance. And I was just adding, uh, and we're going to turn it over to the archives people at the University of Baltimore. Uh, the 31st Street Bookstore is where the Mount Vernon, I'm sorry, the Charles Village tour starts. It's now a normal bookstore, but um, it was a great meeting spot. It was, when it was 31st Street Bookstore, it was lesbian owned. A lot of community things were there, and readings, and just a wonderful place to be. Uh, <clears throat> the sign for the 31st Street Bookstore is in the archives at the University of Baltimore, where there are a lot of gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender memorabilia. And if you have anything, there are archivists there, and uh, they would definitely uh, like to take it in. And there's some 
pictures there that they need people to identify. So um, I was hoping somebody from there would be here tonight uh, so that they uh, could uh, see you. But it's a special um, collection section of the University of Baltimore uh, Library. And um, that houses uh, our information. Uh, Normals uh, is where we need to start our tour. And that block was where we had our first uh, gay pride festival, uh, like a block party that uh, we had. We uh, did that in uh, approximately the 1975, 1976, okay, seventy-seven. Younger mind, uh, can remember those things. Uh, and uh, we had uh, a rally at the Washington Monument, but we had the uh, block party, sort of like the festival. Uh, there was an objection of a church in the block, and. Uh, they, uh, we, we were not welcome back there the next year. <laughs> but that was then, and this is now, and uh, we went to bigger and better places to do that. Uh, this is this other CBS, which is uh, that's at the corner of 25th Street and North Carolina, the old, like, outer area of Baltimore. And uh, that's where uh, the Dana Press uh, lesbian uh, press area, a lot of books published out of that location. Uh, there were a group of rural houses that were torn down to make that store about five. So it was in that area of Baltimore. And that's what's there now. But um, too bad it did not proclaim the historical spot. Ben could probably put it on his map. Uh, and we could have got it designated and saved it from the chopping block. And all. Or publishing area. Yeah. A lot of great things were published out of there uh, in the Lesbians collection. Uh, it's a great press area. So. Uh, this is Gail Pavino, which was in the earlier photograph. That's her English basement. Back of it, it's uh, sitting on the corner of 28th Street and uh, North Calvert, and um, we could easily walk in. And uh, the switchboard was used uh, as a resource guide, as a help, an aid. Uh, people calling, and we had resource books, and we volunteered uh, to do that. People had landlines in, which is so. Some people don't even know what that is. But, uh, uh, and there were those cell phones, pagers, and all the other things that, that might have been, and social media. So that was a way people connected. And uh, we did that for a number of years. Uh, it followed the center in various locations. And the paper stayed there for a while until we bought the building. I don't think that got over to uh, Maryland Avenue. Up Cathedral Street and beyond. Uh, this is a picture of um, 2133 uh, Maryland Avenue. It's actually the right side of center, which is where uh, we renovated that space and uh, moved 
the Gay Men's Speedy Clinic in Vail, which then again became Chase Braxton. Uh, when we moved on Chase Street in Braxton, look out the old sign, you can see the sign, and that's where Chase Braxton got his name changed. On the right, I uh, was in clinic. On the left is the meeting space. This is the steps in the center of that photo. Um, and uh, that's actually where uh, the Union Center of Baltimore got its start as a meeting facility, multi-room meeting facility. We were there for many years until we moved on uh, 241 West Chase Street in the 80s. <coughs> Uh, this is uh, the Lesbian Community Center. This is Greenmont Avenue, and uh, it uh, was a meeting for lesbian support, and it's a part of the uh, Mount Vernon, uh, I mean, sorry, I keep saying that. It's a part of the Charles Village Tour. Um, it's Uh, on a rotation, uh, 
church that volunteers that uh, made that shelter work for many, many years. And quite a safe place. And there were several fires there, unfortunately, in history uh, that damaged uh, the main sanctuary. But the uh, multi-purpose room in the back and uh, the basement and other parts of the church are functional. I don't think uh, they do that much with the main sanctuary. And uniquely, the that we've talked about, the website. Uh, and then I got a promotion in May culture, so I saw like, the aperture open even more. And so I think I saw people navigating this, and I, I saw how people think they want that because there is briefly, if you become like the one for whatever, uh, there is you know a lot of um, privileges attached to it, monetary uh, attention. You, you can you know hey. Um, but then I would see consistently how quickly people bubbled up and And also, I just never had that. I, 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 that, is, that doesn't really sync with my personality. I just, I, you know, you see in the book, I'm always, there's always another part of myself that I would like to invite into this space. I, I, I don't think I cursed tonight, and like, wow, what a moment. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, I haven't talked about, like, the fact that, like, Paul Newman is, like, the hottest ghost <laughs> that we've ever been bestowed upon. And that's still a very diplomatic phrasing of what I'd like to say. About you know what I mean? Like, and that's just, like, I just, you know, I just always felt like, no, but what about this other thing? So I don't think I have, it's not upon my worldview. And I just saw pragmatically all the, it would become news stories. I'd be like, well, girl, here you go, you know. Ellen said she wanted it, so go ahead and write it, you know, to some writer, like, go write about it. Go write about it, you know, hate to, hate to see it. Um, yeah, so I don't, yeah. And then also, you know, I, I'm a Sagittarius, you know, we're always, like, moving on. You know, people think, like, the, the, the thing with Sagittarius is, like, that just trap, it's physical travel. And it is, I do like to travel, but it's also travel across ideas. We tend to change careers. It's just it's this, like, the journey, and we like it, and we appreciate it, transformation. You see it on the book, it's like, how many lives society live? Um, so that's part of it. And then, like, I, think, I don't know, I think readers, generous readers, everybody's not going to be a generous reader, and that's fine. Um, but generous readers, I think, are aware that, like, well, Sai also writes poems. And he'll write an essay or a newsletter. He certainly tweets. Like, there are all these other, because, yeah, I can't. There's no way. It would be a terrible, boring, stodgy book if, if every sentence I stopped to try to couch all the nuance. It just would. You know, and I, I tried now and then, but it's just, I can't do that for every sentence. I'm still an artist. I'm still trying to create something that is beautiful. I want my work to be beautiful. I want, you know, like, I'm going to write gowns and pray to bruise because I want my work to feel like you're reading a poem or a chapter by me, and I want it to feel like an avant-garde gown walking down, you know, a runway. I want you to summon Alexander Queen. I want the Louisiana darling. I want all of it, you know. And, and I'm not going to sacrifice that because of the office. Um, so yeah, I feel like there are other ways to do that. Um, but also that's just, you know, that's not... People are messy. We are messy. And our messiness is important, it's valid, it's human, it's uh, part of our freedom. And I have certainly tried, you see it in different parts of the book, try to be perfect, try to be the golden boy, and buckled under the weight of it. It becomes a, a horrible burden. I think we see people in real time, I think we know people. 
who are just, who just, you, you get to a point where you feel like if you're not perfect all the time to whatever the imagined audience in your head is, the world's kind of falling. And you just wear yourself out, you know? And, and people can't even communicate with you because the moment they start talking, you're trying to politic in your head. And I just think that's an exhausting way to live. That's sort of thing to write. Is your Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Me and Paul Newman goes over here. Yeah, he <laughs> but I know that promise. Right. And, and you have to know. It's different for everyone. And so I'm so curious for writers. This is a deeply sensual book. And and I mentioned, you know, my grandma will pick it up. And she read it. Oh. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I send it with a note. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, I was worried about hurt. I was worried about, I was worried, you know, my, my grandmother is uh, pretty quiet. I mean, she's a woman of few words. Uh-oh. And, like, that's it. And, and then when she read the dialogue for the, the first section of the book, what she just said was, it brought back a lot of memories. That's all she had to say about the most painful Bears a part of her depiction in the book. Wow, she doesn't try to reframe or anything, you know. So, huh? Um, so I also had a scenario in which, like, my mom's siblings would get upset on my grandmother's behalf, knowing that she was. So I was really trying to do right by a lot of people and readers. I, my grandmother is not the grandmother from Soul Food. She hates cooking. First of all, she hates cooking. She always has. Um, it's the only thing that if you bring it up, she'll actually get passionate and start talking a lot about. Um, she is not a storyteller. She's very terse. You would think she was shy, but she isn't. She's just firm, and she's. And I can always have a conversation with the Lord. And why are you here? <laughs> you know, she's minding her own business. And so, yeah, I was also aware of like I didn't want. I wanted to tell the truth. I wanted to have compassionate nuance in terms of my actual relationship with her, but I also felt it was important to do work so that strangers, I mean, think of the thought bubbles that usually appear above people's head when you say like, black gay boy, black single mother, you know, Christian, black grandmother, and you know, like, the t -t 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 and I just felt it was really important for me to do that work for everyone involved, not to get distracted, I guess, from me, uh, but from, from what I was really trying to do. Um, and, and, there, and that's, again, another example of why I think it's just very difficult uh, to, to write a memoir, because there are so many ways, even when you can get nine things right, and then the one thing you kind of, uh, is, might be the thing that takes over. Um, so I wrote a book very slow, I think, for that reason. Can we stop with the questions? Hi. Hi, Daniel. Hello. <laughs> and I just asked that you wait for the microphone, because we are recording for Thank you. Thank you. You speak to it all. Um, what other African American, or I can't say American, but other black communities are dealing with, how far or not far along they are, um, black gay communities in terms of compared to here? Right. Yeah. Um, someone asked me about that the other night, and I'm, it's, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, yeah, you know, I think there's this uh, idea that black. Well, I don't know about. I'm. I'm I always tell people I'm African American as uh, apple pie lynching. So I can't really speak to what's going on on, on the African continent or black people in Europe very well. So I'll just talk about us for a moment. Um, yeah, there's this idea that you know African Americans are somehow uniquely or especially homophobic as opposed to white Americans. I don't think that's true. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it's kind of like. I was, oh, I was in Chicago and I was talking to some students about, um, and, and they wanted to ask about black on black crime and why it was such, and they, they were like, why is it such a problem? And I was like, it's a problem, but I was like, There's, it's just one type of crime. And I was like, I don't think black on black crime is happening more than other types of crime, to be honest. I was like, I think a, a question that I want you to 
to start thinking about kids, you know, is, is why does the media talk about it so much? And I think that's somewhat similar to um, African-American homophobia. Sure, statistically more African-Americans practice some form of Christianity, and, and so that sets up a dynamic at play. Um, but I, I think, I think in my experience, you know, um, I have many, many, many black Christian family members who are not homophobic. That's not the issue. <laughs> you know, they're fine. They're, in fact, many of them are very, very Christian and very, very queer, you know. Um, as I've learned getting to know, like, my bigger, you know, the bigger expanse of my family. Um, I think for me in this book, what I decided to do was that, because that is so complicated, um, and I only know my story very well, right? And that, as I mentioned, all the other things I was trying to do well, I tried to focus, and I think the opening chapter is a good example of this. I didn't really want to opine about my mom's homophobia. She had it. She wasn't good. You see what becomes. She's not good at talking about gay stuff. You see, we have a pretty good dynamic relationship. But whenever gayness comes up, it just gets really quiet all the time for years. Um, and so I decided to focus on what I knew and trust that. And I, you know, was like, well, listen, you know, if she grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and one of her first friends was gay and ended up being HIV positive during the worst, it's still ongoing, right, as an HIV AIDS crisis, especially for black men, but the worst years of the HIV AIDS crisis, she saw that in real time, and she begins to have an inkling that her son might be gay too. Silence is often our response to fear with loved ones. You know, and this has happened, you know, Matthew Shepard figures into the book, and I've met moms, you know, this week, who've been like, oh, my son is gay too, and I think about Matthew Shepard, and I just freeze up. I'm just so scared, and I don't, I love him, and it's fine, but I'm so scared. I'm so scared, you know? And so, wow, and, and that to me seemed like a terrain that I could mine and really work with, more so than these bigger, you know, CNN kind of level uh, conversations. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think it's more interesting. What does it mean when you love someone and, and their identity is not actually the problem, but what their identity out in America and how scary that is, that fear becoming the problem. Like that's, I don't know, I think, I, I think it's more complicated and interesting for me. Yeah, thank you for the question. Don't be shy. Is there anything that you're reading or watching or listening to lately that really speaks to you that mm -hmm. you would recommend? I mean, that's like one of the ones I've been doing all the time. All the time. Uh, you know, if you've read it, you get it. You're just, it's just like. <laughs> it's the single best book that I believe has been written in the last 20 years. I just, I, I'm willing to. He, she made it all! I just, it's, just, it's just tremendous. Everything we're going through right now. It, it makes sense. She refers to Jim Crow as a caste system. She refers to black people moving from the south to the north as migrants, as refugees. She draws comparisons to how far black people traveled and how similar that is to Irish people escaping. You know, the, the, this international, that, oh my gosh, it just, and as someone with a grandma who is not a storyteller, and whose family is, frankly, in some ways, um, oppressed by our self-imposed silences. It was just 
my heart is bigger and my, my brain is more compassionate for having read a book that helped me locate my history and my family's history in our bigger story, you know? It's just, and it's well-written, too. Um, it's just beautiful. Um, also, I guess uh, Trigger Mirror by G Gia Tolentino is just absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, other media. Hmm, Steven Universe is great. <laughs> uh, I really like the new Dark Crystal on Netflix. It was really fun. It's all about the Trump administration. It's literally called Dark Crystal Age of the Resistance. I was like, oh, okay. Like, it's good. But it's literally, it's like, I think it's like a, sh a show that's like, let's help kids understand what it means to like come together to, to fight oppression when it's like, we've got to do this. You know, we've got to set aside our differences and focus. That's useful. Um, and then the podcast, I love a good podcast moment, Death, Sex, and Money. Um, I did that, I did an interview with it recently, and it's Anna Sale, and it's good. It's a podcast about death, sex, and money, these important things uh, uh, that we don't talk about. Yeah. Thank you. Woo, look at that. You got us one up, girl. Both of y'all. Um, but often, you know, editors will just like read the book 
and uh, take four months to go all the way through it and send you back this like letter that's like nine pages long, and then you just go back and keep working. Like good luck. I was like, no, 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 boy, I'm texting you. You know, I'm gonna email you a couple of paragraphs, and you're gonna tell me if I'm going the right. Like I needed a, a hands-on because I think that applies. Like this paragraph is actually important. You know, just like nailing the description of my mother in that paragraph. It does so much work because I don't describe her really anymore after that. You know, and so I had to get it right so I can sleep at night. Um, so yeah, it's an adjustment, but I don't know that thoughtfulness. Writing slowly, um, you know. I, I was hoping when I sold the book in 2015 that 2019 would shake out a little differently on the national level. You know, um, but slowly working on the book while all of this has been unfolding, though I don't like go Trump or huh, you, there are touches, you know, that certainly I hope resonate with what's going on now. And, and when you see, you know, Trump, for example, had a horrible father, a very, very, very mean father. Um, and we're seeing perhaps what that shakes out of, you know? Like, I hope when you read the book, you see what we inherit from our parents and are trying to figure out. And that thoughtfulness came from just taking this so damn long. Is that me? And I don't know how you experienced this, but um, starting in poetry, mm -hmm. for me, and then moving into nonfiction, in poetry, as you mentioned, makes me focus so much on, I almost think of it in a similar way that I do, like, like when you take a photograph of something, you are, you notice things about, like, if, you know, when you take, sometimes I do this sort of exercise where I just try to pay attention to things as if I were going to try and take a picture of it, and you just know, like, what's the ceiling look like, and what's the, what's the curve of the sidewalk, right? And I think for, when I write a poem, I am paying attention to the most granular detail of an idea, a moment, an image that I can. And, and I found that incredibly helpful for the nonfiction project because part of what I, you know, even from my book and, and certainly to yours, is you want to provide a level of texture yes. to, to the space. I want you to, to build the emotions. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and and both taught me that. Yeah. You know, I agree. And I think that I would be writing a very short book yeah. if, if I hadn't been trained to, to notice in the way that poetry looks. Absolutely. And we'll do two more questions later. Um, thank you. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about Columbus, Ohio. Like, <laughs> There's so much, so much information out there about Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> um, uh, if I remember correctly, you're both former educators, both, both former teachers, both poets. Um, I'm wondering um, if you could share, or what was your favorite poem to share with young people, or what would be your favorite poem now if you were in the classroom? Hmm. Do you have a favorite poem that's my favorite poem that I shared with students? I'm to. Um, can I do? Can I read one of my own? Yeah, I was tempted to ask that, but okay. I mean, yeah, just because I was like, you know, I, I taught ninth graders, so they had to read fucking Cashman the Rock. I was like, of course you like it. I hate that damn book, but they love it because they identify with Holden so much. I'm like, good, because you know, for young readers, identifying with the character. Is just like 75% of it. And I was like, you know, like actually with another country, I went back and reread it when I saw the book in 2015. And it is still it's a good book. I was like, it is incredibly violent. In some ways, it's, it's deep foreshadowing, actually, of things that happen later in the book. But as a kid, you notice the details I point out. 
men kissing men, then kissing women again. Black men and white, you know, like that, the, the identities of characters resonating with things that I was trying to figure out mattered more to me than the plot and anything else. <laughs> um, and then as an adult, I was like, ooh, there's a lot more going on here. What's going on here? Um, a poem that I teach a lot when I'm doing workshops with young people, and, and like anyone who's like, you know, learning in, or insecure about writing, uh, is uh, The Blue Dress, which is a poem that follows dream logic. So it's The Blue Dress is, is a silk train, is a river, is water, trickles, it just is, and it just keeps changing, and keeps changing. And I just find, and again, I wrote it in that like way, and I teach it in that way, um, I find it helpful to teach because it frees young people up. Because the poem is written from the perspective of a kid. And you know if you talk to like a little kid, like what is this? It's a truck, and the truck is from Mars, and if you look at it, look away, because if you look at it wrong, it'll blow you up. You know, they, they just, you're just like, okay, right. wow, you know? And I just, I think we just need to go, wow, and let them keep going. And that is the beginning of something beautiful and healthy for them. And so I like to teach that poem and then let them like pick an object. The water bottle is, it's this, it's this and just, and there's no wrong answers, and just keep going. And I try to get them to go as long as they can, actually, before they stop themselves. I'm like, we can do the stop yourself later. But that, that's an exercise, because someone was mentioning the emotion. And just, it's, it's, to get good at poetry, you have to define and, and refine that impulse to hear the value in the, huh, what's that? I'll pursue it. And that is a very different impulse than we typically cultivate. You know, um, if I try to answer your question that way, it's just like, good luck, you know. Um, but I think it's good for kids, especially in us. Following that, I talked to Tampa Bay, I talked to Tampa Bay, I talked to English, um, in the time. And shout out to PG. And I, this one, I was in the Crazy song of the day. Oh. And I, I podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.